Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is me, William Porteous, your host. Tell you what, guys. Wow. A few hours of, of hell I've had. Just had a kidney stone. I mean, <laughs> just... Uh, you know what's so funny? Is I was talking about this with a, a guest last night. Or whatever it was. It's all a blur. How I was walking on the South Downs and I got a kidney stone nine years ago. Well, I got one again. Except I should have got two. Oh, it was like, it was crazy. Just an hour of, um, maybe an hour, an hour of excruciating pain. Like, I, I, I know, I, I know that pain, even though it's been nine years. Oh yeah. But I was lucky because it, it, it came out real quick, really, comparatively speaking. But throwing up from pain, that's never great fun. <laughs> and that's what I was doing, pulling my van over and throwing up. Do you know what Rosie did? She did fuck all. You know, so you get that thing where dogs have this, you know, really weird, cool, like, empath- like this em- em- empathetic gene that they just, they just can smell the pain and, and they smell your anguish. <laughs> Shit, she did. I mean, she, she, yeah, nothing, nothing. I don't know. Anyway, onwards and upwards. Don't get a kidney stone. Drink loads of water. Or don't, if you, if you, I mean, honestly, so much pain. I can't even... It, it, when I was nine years ago, I, a doctor said it's the akin, akin to childbirth. So it is. It's agony. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> this week, uh, well, this week, this episode is it's a, it's a great one. We've got Blaine Harrison from the Mystery Jets. Wonderful band. Wonderful conversation. He's such a sweet guy. So And, and what a songwriter. And a great story, how they started out as a band, the evolution of the band, the incredible songs that they've written. They're the most catchiest, awesome rock band of all time. Of of like, in my in in my opinion, I mean, when I say rock band, I don't want that to put you off because I wouldn't say it's more it's rock really. It's in the it's in the sort of vague rock tradition. But you know, anyway, you'd know that because you would have. Googled them, or you would have been on Spotify and had a good listen by now because I've been talking about this interview for so long. And I'm, I was so excited about this because what is strange is I have been to see them zero times. Zero times. I have been to see them. Um, I don't know why that is. I have had tickets. Coronavirus came along. Previous to that, I think I had uh, someone throw my tickets away by accident. And then I've been to Glastonbury and every single time they've been in a tent and it's been too busy (laughs) to get in. That's how popular that band are. But you know what? Who who cares? I mean, you don't give a shit that I haven't seen in life. Blaine didn't give a shit and he in in a good way, in a lovely way, because he's a lovely guy. But let let, let me tell you, this is a what this is a really great conversation and he's He's got such a great outlook on life, and we had a good, uh, we had a good bond, I think. And toward, towards the end of the, the the conversation, two things happened. One was good, one was bad. One was good that we were able to unite about um, 
disability and uh, attitude is everything so attitude is everything is a charity that works for disabled people and gig access and enjoyment uh, for disabled people so I was in a band back in the day a terrible awful heavy rock band called possessed how was possessed spelt you ask it was spelt with a Z P-O-Z-E-S-T okay I think that gives you an indication uh, yeah and so we used to do gigs for that charity and so we had a good bond over that and it and it brought back a lot of memories with my friend Greg and I we used to do countless gigs around London and it was beautiful it was wonderful not the best music but a fantastic experience and then we had a technical hitch where I ran out of disc space you know we, we really did chat for a long time so there is a period of silence, not silence, but a period at the end where Blaine is simply just talking and there's no interaction. And that's because my, my card filled up. I'm not happy about it. And it's really unprofessional. But my God, I wasn't expecting us to have such a long conversation. It was so great. But anyway, um, another thing you're going to have to give me some leeway on is the audio quality is not the best but it's neither is it the worst and i think to be honest with you you kind of get used to it after a while anyway but just if you could just bear with me on that one we were using skype because clean feed didn't work for me which was a shame a shower of shit clean feed is a, an app that you use now for like it's like a zoom based thing but anyway yeah there you go and uh, that was very annoying um, for Blaine because he, he was really you know hoping to use that and I, I didn't and it just didn't work it was my bad it was my technical error as per usual I might add but yeah I, other than that uh, gosh did you enjoy the soy dog episode I think you did the feedback's been incredibly positive it's one hell of a story no and if you haven't listened to it yet do so it's it's a hecker it's a heck of a a story so heartfelt some true tragedy but some incredible accomplishment so yeah and I hope you enjoyed that and yeah and I, just again the, the housekeeping thing as per usual no sponsor on this show but I, I, I do have a website with a with a short film on it that I think you're going to enjoy yeah, the, the short film is called The Name and the website is, is sorry there's a fly buzzing around God. Did you ever watch that episode of Breaking Bad? The Fly. God. The, the website is somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. It's got a great short film on there. Why not watch it? No, no, no. Just whatever. And yeah, of course, we've got the book club coming up. Now, that's pretty... That's, that's soon. I think we're going to put that out Sunday. Okay, so see so your last warning. So if you haven't already, get stuck into um, Stoner by John Williams because we're going to have Steve Almond on the show talking about the wonders of that book so check it out i know you're gonna love it it's gonna be wonderful so here we are here's a chat with blaine harrison of the mystery jets the wonderful blaine and this is a truly fantastic journey it's a long it's a long wonderful conversation and, and every second you're going to get something from it I, I guarantee it and if you want to hit me up it's always on uh twitter it's always going to be a limehouse pod uh, and it's uh, what an Instagram on the William Porteous on there, and you can email me at the Limehouse Podcast 
at gmail.com. You look after yourself, stay safe, don't get a kidney. To get it if you get a kidney stone, just call me. I'll talk you through it. It's fucking unbelievable pain. It's unbelievable. Jesus Christ. And drink loads of water. Okay then. such a guy but how, how have you been not too bad not too bad thank you yeah um yeah like my my day-to-day reality isn't all that different oh really um, since you know lockdown well where i live i'm very fortunate that i've got uh, the studio where mystery jets do our recording is in my basement so yeah. um it's very easy for me to just potter down there and you know sort of get busy with stuff or if i'm having a bit of a hard time if i'm having a bit of an existential crisis i can just go and jump in front of a microphone and scream into it yeah yeah um which is which is cool and yeah like i mean i suppose the hardest thing really has been the lack of human contact that's been something that i think that everyone's found uh, very difficult yeah and especially being in a band um which relies on having you know four or five people with you to to do what you do and that's not possible so we're having to do i'm having to do quite a lot of um my screen time is up i'm going to put it that way my screen time is up a lot big, probably about big five thousand percent yeah yeah big time like crazy are you are you on your are you on your uh, who are you with are you on your own with a girlfriend with a with a a parent i don't know i'm isolating with my girlfriend yeah so for the first six weeks of lockdown i was alone um and in the last week my girlfriend's joined me so that's been a really nice kind of shift in the dynamic i suppose to have someone to wash up with and um (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's the dynamic Maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, a firm shake of the hand, you know, that's always nice. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I suppose one of the things that it's, it's reminded me is how much I really value, um, you know, not just connection with, with people, but also just being stuck indoors so much of the time. It's, you know, it's, it's really hard, I think, especially at this time of year. And, you know, you want to be out mm-hmm. seeing people and enjoying the spring and, um, and uh, playing gigs, which is what we would be doing. And that's something that obviously is like a really big part of my life. What we would be doing right now is going into festival season. And instead, we're looking at um, six months without work mm-hmm. and without an opportunity to, to, you know, to play our new record and to, um, to play shows. So that's, mm. that's going to be the, probably the first year we haven't done festivals in about 16 years. Christ. So it's going to be a kind of diff- um, yeah. different, again, different dynamic. Yeah. No, that, that's insane. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, about what you're up against at the moment as a band in terms of like, in, I suppose, cause you losing a huge income um gigging mm. and not being able to get out there because obviously gigging it now that everything's essentially you make an album it's streamed it's n- not free if you want to support a band you can definitely pay for it but a lot of a, a lot of it is now about going out and touring that's been taken away how's that affected you guys 
it's well what i would say about that is that um ask me in six months i was, I was literally <laughs> just about to say if I'm still here. yeah in, in it, can i yeah exactly it's like it's not now is it because it's going to be a knock-on effect isn't it that's it it's the knock-on effect i think where it's going to get difficult and i think um i mean there's so many articles doing the rounds at the moment you know there's a lot of really interesting conversations happening around how the music industry is going to survive um covid and i think one of the biggest problems is that a lot of artists a lot of artists don't feel um it's either their place or they feel uncomfortable asking for um payouts essentially or for donations and it's something which i think it's particularly um in britain it's very it sort of con it sort of contradicts with our englishness mm. is you know is to admit that perhaps we're struggling and i think come the end of the summer i think there's going to be a lot of um artists that will be seriously having to ask the question of it you know whether this is actually um a sustainable existence and um that all sounds very existential and you know there's always someone in a worse situation than you and i mean you know in the case of corona there is there are people um losing their lives so there's yeah. obviously much much more serious things happening um but yeah since you asked the question i mean it is going to be really interesting to see how things pan out and um what obviously once upon a time touring was a way of promoting a record and because that because records are no longer where as an artist you make your income um essentially the record is sort of to provoke is sort of to um essentially incentivize people to come and see you play shows yeah i mean making a record is obviously still um you know i certainly still view it as making a work of art as as a as a writer would consider writing a book but in terms of is it a source of um income it's it's not touring is where that happens it's and especially festivals so um mm. it's going to be it's going to be a diff, difficult few months for a lot of for a lot of artists well i mean especially because of the massive highs that you get from playing festivals and knowing what that high is like it is um and obviously there's the the kind of like bitch got to pay rent aspect of it but there's also the um i say that because uh, that's in my head since i chatted with dog jolly he was literally just he just he's such a so so fucking funny he just kept on saying look man it's true bitch got to pay rent you got to just make money how you got to make it and i'm like yeah okay i, I take that um but it, it it is it's like you know the idea of of losing a summer of festivals but then losing the financial um uh gain is oh my god you know that's I mean, I don't want to put a downer on this, man, because you've been in isolation for, you know, for a long time and you've only just, you know, you've only just seen your girlfriend. So I don't want to like bring you crashing yeah. down. And it's like you said in six, you know, we, we, we're not really going to know for six months, I suppose. But um, do you do you have any hope for a sort of gov government government support or is that just a bit of a joke? It's It's slightly difficult as a musician because you you do fall through the cracks slightly when it comes to, um, you know, furlough schemes and um, universal credit, things like that. There are grants which um, I have applied for and, you know, some of the other guys in the band have applied for 
and um, uh, I was successful on one, but you know it was like two hundred quid. <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's a week's shopping. I mean, I, it's something for sure, but I think the problem is that the the schemes, the um, the bursaries were so oversubscribed mm. that they actually stopped taking um, applications after I think it was two days. Um, and I think there's going to be several more rounds over the course of the next few months. So, but it's difficult because the criteria um, really varies hugely depending on where you're at in your career, what type what type of an artist you are. You know, you're on your own. Are you part of a band? Are you signed? Um, and I think uh, it's yeah, it, it is it is difficult. And like I said, I think there is a stigma about around talking about mm. it because um, <clears throat> there's always someone who uh, someone who is in a worse situation than you. you know? Yeah, and I think. Um, and we're all dealing with it in our own way. And I think there's no there's no sort of uh, like correct answer to that question. I think everyone has to, um, I suppose, do their research and just find out what's available to them. Yeah. I mean, there's a pay, there's like, you know, podcasts do um, Patreon and stuff like that. And I know uh, that that's a form for a lot of, of podcasts making money. There's no harm in like a band going, look, we're all really, really going through it. Um, this is how this is the A, B and C, how we normally make our money. Um, um, a and b have been taken away actually a b and c have all been taken away you know mm. uh, relying on like a back catalogue that is um you know if you're not like brian adams or something you're not going to get a, an awful lot from your back catalogue i guess like that can be shared so many ways just you know I, I, i'd give you guys a couple of quid you know a little you know once uh <laughs> you know once a fortnight or something fuck it you know but anyway that's maybe for a rainy day but um I want to talk about where you guys started out because um, I've got a funny story, not a funny story, but um, I used to be in a shit band. We weren't shit. I'm being self-deprecating. We, we, I was in a band called the DIY Cravings, right? And we were on the bill with you guys. What were you called? What was the name? The DIY Cravings. Why does that ring a bell? I feel like that rings a bell. Yeah, it, it shouldn't. I think I think it's just it rings. A... I feel like I saw. I feel like I saw that name like graffitied on in some toilet in camden or something very 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 likely my friend very likely and we played we played together at this place called the pleasure unit i think in bethnal green yes yeah. yes and I remember that place it's now called the is it called the sun i i don't know i haven't been up that neck of the woods star. in years it's the star of bethnal green now yeah it's it's sort of had a second yeah because it, it was mental right because I, I i that gig was so nerve-wracking for me because I, I busted my ass to try and get someone from a record label down and you guys i think you might have got a record label down that night or something and i was talking to, i remember talking to will your your old guitar player and he was like and he was so adorable and so lovely and he was like yes guys coming down to check us out and i think you might I think you were in the process of getting a deal. Like it was years and years and years ago. Um, yeah. Can you, can you remember gigs like that? Cause I, I remember, I remember that. Gig. Yeah. I remember that gig. And, and I remember that there was a post, there was a post kind of in, it was in the middle of the stage. That's the motherfucker. Do you remember? I was literally just about to was, say, yeah. You were sort of either behind it or you were to the left, <laughs> the right of it. And it was incredibly difficult to like, 
hat put you know like put on a show because you couldn't really see half the band yeah yeah um but uh yeah i mean god that would have been way back probably 2004 five oh yeah 2005 maybe yeah that would <laughs> something like that 15 years ago god almighty yeah that would have that would have been around then and i, I remember it really well because your your drummer had um was using books to prop up his tom stand or something his tom 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 floor tom and it was really funny because I, we do the whole, because I'm a drummer or was a drummer back then. And I was like, oh, you know, you go up to a gig, you borrow the, you borrow the drummer's, you know, like rack tom, kick and all that, like the shell of the kit. And your, your fucking drummer turned up with like a drum kit that looked like it had been like, oh, you've gone, connection lost. There was a problem with the network. Gay. Let me recall them. That was a bit of shit, to be honest. That signal. Don't know why I'm racing it now. I've got a phone call to make. Your connection is too weak. Oh, is it done that thing? Oh, yeah, I, I, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. you dropped out. Quality might, you know what? The quality might be better without, without, without um, vid. Yeah, I was thinking yeah, that. that might... How do I disconnect video? God, I, I sound like an idiot, don't I? Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, no, what was I talking about? Yeah, the, your, your drummer's um, kit, your, uh, Floor Tom. And, and it, I was like, oh my God, these guys, what the fuck are they going to sound like? You know, and our, our drum kit was, I mean, we were fucking lo-fi, man. We were just, didn't give a crap. But anyway, you guys started and I was immediately like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing. Um, and, then, and you had your your dad on guitar and like us being like super cool hipsters were like, oh my God, they've got like this old guy in the band. What's going on? And it was just, it was fucking amazing. What a gig. What a show. I mean, there's like probably like six people in the audience, if that. And it was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so fucking amazing. That really stuck with me, that show. And I mean, you know what it's like. You do like hundreds and hundreds of gigs, don't you, before you get a record deal. And and that must have been like 101 for you guys. But anyway, I just thought I'd just... But aren't they know. the best ones? Aren't those ones the best ones? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess they're... They're the ones yeah. that you remember, you know. I mean, the fact that we're talking about it you know 16 years later whatever it is yeah. uh, i think um i mean certainly i look back on the early days with such fondness um and i mean i, I i'm not you know i'm not i wouldn't say i'm a nostalgic person so but it was a great time for guitar music oh, yeah. in this country and um i think also being that age I, how old are you i'm 38 Okay, well, yeah, similar age. Yeah. Um, I'm 
34. 34. So lucky bastard. Uh, well, 35 next week. Actually. Okay, nice one. <laughs> yeah, I'm Gemini. Happy birthday. But, um, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. But I think being that age that, that we were, I think um, you don't really care who's there. Mm. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I vividly, it was just the excitement of, of doing a show somewhere new um, and turning up with all your gear and lovingly setting it up on piles of books, as you said. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to know what those books were. I know. They were, I'm, I'm, I'm like, part of me wonders whether or not they were like really thick, like, you know, like books like on Plato and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Encyclopedias. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I love that. I mean, our first tour was, was we organized ourselves and it, it was, uh, we, we bought a van for about 500 quid from the church yeah um and we the, at the time there was a book which was called i think it was called like how to how to break break out of the pub circuit it was called something like that okay and it yeah, was yeah. it cost about 50 quid and it was it was as thick as a dictionary and it had the it had the phone number of every oh. venue agent promoter dude i know country. that book it was like red was yeah. it like black and red yeah. yeah, I know exactly the fucking book because I totally bought one of those as well. And I was like, right, this is how we're going to make it. But anyway, carry on. Yeah. And so we'd, we'd spent 50 quid on this book yeah. and we and thought, well, you know, now we've got the book where we're obviously we're pro, you know, we're, <laughs> we're going to make it now. Um, and we booked this whole tour, our first tour out of, the, out of this black book. And, um, you know, in total of the whole tour, we probably played... Uh, maybe 14 gigs up and uh, sort of up and down the UK, and yeah. we probably played in total to about 100 people. Shit. You know, yeah, yeah. I I know that the exact feeling, my friend. Oh my god! I I once drove up to Wakefield with my old bands from Guildford, and all the way up played. I picked this band, but I found this band supporting the Cribs. I thought, oh my god, they're supporting the Cribs. They're amazing. So we got a a a, a gig playing with those guys. Went all the way up to Wakefield to play with them. And there were like six, not even six. We are talking like the barman. This was genuinely just the barman. And I was <laughs> in the shittest mood imaginable. I wasn't even doing the fucking driving. And we drove all the way back, all the way up to Wakefield all, and all the way back to play to a barman yeah. in one yeah. fucking night. You know that, did you ever have those nights? We did, yeah, several of those. I mean, um, we drove to Sheffield once. This was actually part of that tour um so it was a leg of the tour yeah. and we didn't have any hotels so we were just sleeping either in the van or well there wasn't enough room in the van so what we what we do is three or four lucky ones would get the van and then everyone else would sleep on a ground sheet because it was it we'd just broken up from school it was our it was our it was the first summer that we left school wow. and um we had a giant ground sheet and we just spread it out uh, next to the van in a field and <laughs> half the band would sleep on this ground sheet with just with just sleeping bags you know oh um, God. and we I remember we had this giant block of hash which some <laughs> someone had I think one of our mates who was taking photos I think had brought it along and we just used to that kept us warm <laughs> that's, that's how we survived and then once a day we'd go to a supermarket and we'd take whatever you know like takings we'd we'd made from selling a couple of cds yeah. maybe um a couple of fanzines whatever we had 
with us and we'd go to a supermarket and we'd fill up a shopping trolley and we'd all eat out straight out the shopping trolley in the car park and that was our one meal a day oh, amazing. Um, but it was wonderful you know yeah. and i and i think I, I i feel so um grateful to have had to have those memories and those experiences and yeah. i think what it does is that when you do um end up doing this professionally and you know playing semi-decent venues you really you don't take it for granted because you you have sort of you know climbed up and um i think those tours are actually kind of the most important tours that you do as a band because it i think if you can survive three weeks around the uk playing to barmen as you said and the odd dog and um (laughs) sleeping under the stars then i think you know like you maybe you've got what it takes to be a band and to do it to do it you know in in real life i think you're right man i think there's a time there's a time frame though isn't there there's a time frame when it, it just it's it, it 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 stops being cool and fun and everything like i i you know i completely agree with you but i, I mean we used to do gigs at like the um carnarvon castle in camden which has now been knocked down and and mm. freaking amazing bands used to play there but when you know those those would be good gigs you know they're be like mad punkers in there and and then just new you know new kids as well um enjoy i don't know what i mean by new kids i think i mean like people that listen to new music maybe i don't know okay (laughs) and i'm certainly not new kids on the block let me tell you yeah and um yeah you know they'd be amazing yeah they'd be fucking amazing memories right but then that was one in every 15 and it just got and also it's about the music you know if, if your music's good i the era especially that you we're talking about here 05 04 maybe 06 that's when oh my god record labels would would climbing over each other to try and sign bands and like can you can you remember when it started to turn for you when like it was like we know we've got the music and which label were there labels starting to show interest right from the get-go or was it a very slow process well, what actually happened with us is that we we played one or two of those gigs in Camden, um, those kind of toilet venues, which uh, places like Dublin Castle, yeah. Bar, what was the Barfly? I think it's called the Assembly now. Okay. Um, places yeah. like that. And first off, we were super young. We were 17, 18. And uh, I think what we really resented about it is that we'd be playing for these kind of small time promoters who would who would be charging 10 quid on the door like eight quid if you're on the guest list or if you had a flyer it was our job to make all the flyers um so essentially we were promoting our own shows that our friends would have to pay a tenner to go in to see us play and we'd be like first on supporting you know a couple of like dad rock bands who you know and like all, all our friends would leave straight up so they'd be paying all this money to come and see us open up these shows and it just felt really it felt really a bit depressing and a bit desperate and it was it was all i suppose with this vague notion that oh that's where the a and r guys hang out is in Dude. you know in cam oh. in camden on a thursday night and it's like no of course they it don't it was the they... selling selling tickets to to fucking for promoters right you, to, to buy like 50 tickets off us and and you can play here it's like go f- just fuck off like what are you talking about absolutely and that that whole kind of pay to play like attitude just uh, we hated we really really resented Mm. so what we decided to do was put on our own shows 
and um, at the time we had a re- we had a rehearsal room which was on a little bit of land that my dad owned uh, on a place called Eel Pie Island, yeah. which is which is an island in the in the River Thames down in Twickenham. So you know, like it was near enough for people to get to people coming from the other side of London, people coming from suburbs. Um, and, but what was amazing about Eel Pie was that you have, you have to walk over this footbridge and once you get onto the Island, it's like walking into an Enid Blyton novel. It's, oh, wow. it feels completely removed from, um, from London. And I think there's a real, there's a real charm that comes with, you know, living somewhere like that. At the, at the time my dad lived on a houseboat and which was moored off this, um, kind of bit of wasteland which had been artist studios and boat yards but wow. it, it all it all burnt down in an arson fire and so he he ended up buying this land very cheaply because no one else wanted it no one else would touch it and um he had this porter cabin which he let us rehearse in uh once or twice a week whilst and the porter cabin also doubled up as his sort of office <laughs> whilst he was clearing this land and it took him about three years to clear off all the rubble and all the um, all the burnt out sort of remnants of the, of, of the uh, art studios that had been there. Oh, and so we said, yeah. And so we said, well, why don't we just put on parties here and, and people can travel and, you know, the, the shows can be free and people can bring their own booze. And a lot of our friends were too young to get served at pubs anyway. Enid Blyton, um, like, you know, Enid, Enid Blyton land, come here for a gig, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, one of the things that we loved about it is that we could sort of curate the whole experience because, you know, one of the things I hated about these, these pub gigs in Camden um, was that, you know, the beer, the beer was shit or it was too expensive. Mm. You could, you know, you, you could only afford like a pint of Carling yeah. and Ugh. cost an arm and a leg to get in. And they were sticky. They were these dark, depressing rooms. And um, this room that we had, this port cabin, we ended up, bringing in loads of lights we had a smoke machine <laughs> smoke we machine our... yeah <laughs> we, we put all our rugs up on the walls and we created this sort of bedouin tent-esque like beautiful environment that um bands just love playing in so we would we would play a show yeah. and we'd invite lots of our friends from the local area so it was people like jamie t <laughs> no love um the Noisettes were friends of ours. Bands like oh, I've just she... I just spoke to to Shingai from the Noisettes. Oh, did you? Yeah, Mate. she's a lovely Mate. woman. I love I love Shingi. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so a lot of those guys came down, and it started off. We were just this was the days of MySpace, obviously. So <laughs> just, Classic. We just ping up a we ping up like a, a message on our MySpace the day before, and. It was really, really early days of the band, so yeah. we probably, you know, like we knew everyone that came down to the shows. They were all friends. They were really just friends um, or people from our, our uni. So I'd, I was on an art foundation course. Will was on an art foundation course. And we'd, uh, we'd also put notices up, like, in the uni bars. And then gradually this sort of thing started to snowball and these new faces started showing up. And over the course of... It would have been about 18 months or, yeah, or thereabouts, a year and a half. We did, I think we did 12 parties um, and they just grew and grew and grew. And um, 
kind of yeah literally by word of mouth and by the end we actually couldn't advertise them on myspace anymore because they they'd sort of become too um it become too visible so we just send out text messages to our friends on the morning of the of the party and um you know two three four five hundred people would show up Jesus, so you're like really creating your own scene there basically we did we did yeah i mean without even um really intending to yeah it was like i said it was it was reaction against playing these venues in camden um and being that little bit younger and also just having lots of friends and bands that felt a similar way mm. and um not being one of like not wanting to be ripped off right absolutely absolutely and and um you know there was definitely also i mean Ilpai island has a real it has an incredible history so in the 60s it was um there was this essentially it was a hotel which became a kind of amazing magnet for what were, would have been the kind of r&b youth culture mm -hmm. of that time yeah. um and you know the who played there like <laughs> I was about to say the who yeah it's got to be the who right yeah. 60s r&b yeah the who the yardbirds yeah. like rod stewart used to play there pink floyd like hendrix yeah. everyone played in this hotel and it and it's sort of what eel Pine's most known for did the stone and, roses um, play there or am i imagining that no it would no, have been that's, gone that's the other it would have one. been gone by that time okay. um it it eventually got squatted uh -huh. and uh it kind of it, yeah it burnt down i think it either burnt or legend has it it sunk <laughs> Rod, i met roger daltrey once and he said oh yeah i remember your pond it, uh, it sunk didn't it so how how can an island sink? No. Just, did you just did you just nod your head and go, yeah, yeah, Rog. Okay, yeah. It have? Yeah. yeah. Like I mean, you don't so question well. Daltrey, man. No one questions Daltrey. You don't. You don't. He's going to fucking I, scream in your face in a nice way. I question his politics, but I don't, every, I don't question his every, every Everyone questions Roger Daltrey's politics. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. But, you know, they, they, those guys are of a... As an, an era aren't they you know they belong to a time and you can't expect them to like move necessarily that quickly with the times i guess no absolutely yeah absolutely but um that is so fucking awesome man that's such a rich story you've just told that's so cool like i think i think i i'd know i i knew that you guys like had a thing with um eel pile island eel pile I'm, I'm not going to try and get this right because I'm just going to get it wrong. It's a tongue twister. But I, yeah. I had no idea it was like to that extent. And I feel jealous. I feel, do you know why? Because I feel like I missed a great party. Well, that's it. And, you know, and, and still to this day, I bump into people out and about and they say, oh, man, I used to come to those parties at Eel Pie and people that I've never seen before. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it really it, it really warms my heart because it you know, it worked. And I think it, it came from um, just like a really genuine feeling, yeah. like I said, that we had and lots of our friends had. And, you know, a, a lot of our friends got record deals out of it. So by the last couple of parties, um, you know, A&R people, scouts, managers, lawyers were turning up. <laughs> and um, I remember once um, we had found our manager by that point, uh -huh. and Sam, who's still our manager to this day. No way, that's and great. He, yeah, and I remember he came in one day and he said, you never fucking believe he's just walked in. I said, well, who was it? It was Seymour Stein. And Seymour Stein um, was, I believe I'm right in saying he was Sire Records. So he Ooh. signed 
Talking Heads. He signed Blondie. Motherfucker, um, Jesus. Ramones. Yeah, and he'd he was obviously over on um, on a business trip, and God knows who, but someone brought him along to to wow. one of our parties, and um, yeah. So there was there was these incredible. That is uh, like legend, dude. Do a documentary on this, like, and do it quickly, because this is amazing. I mean, obviously you've told this story before, la la la, but I can see this now. I can see you standing there, pointing at things and going, this is where this used to be. And this is where the guy from, you know, Stein guy sat, stood and watched us. People are going to fucking love that. I I, I want to make it. I want to make that that documentary. Netflix, man. Just get on Netflix. Yeah. I'm rambling. Let's take it to Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I'm, ra- I'm, going, I'm getting really excited. I'm getting really excited. I can, I can, I can feel it coming. But that's so yeah. cool. I mean, part of me thinks this... Um, it was definitely like written for you guys, but also what a great opportunity for you to like learn how to perform, learn how to interact with an audience and craft those songs and go, hey, you know, that one didn't work so well live. We could try it differently next time. And because and, and so many bands don't have that opportunity, they're very much thrust into that um, world very quickly. If they've got, you know, if they've got a, a reasonable amount of songs, they get a record deal and suddenly they're boom, boom, boom. And they don't necessarily mm. have that that his that like history with 200 300 people we know how did you learn how to work a crowd then mm, i think we probably did um i mean i wasn't the front man of the band well i hadn't been the front man of the band for very long because yeah. i was originally the drummer yeah, yeah, actually indeed, yeah. which is which is dude i'm um, yeah cool. we're drummers it's drummer, to, drummer, to drummer. drummer to drummer um and we originally had a female singer who decided to leave or we sacked her, I can't remember. It was what, It was sort of a combination of the two. It yeah. was kind of like, I think I've outgrown this. And we were like, well, we don't want you anyway. I <laughs> love it. And she's she's a very dear friend. We, like Our friendship survived the wreckage of, uh, of the first incarnation of the band, which is, which is lovely. Yes. But um, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it, it probably taught us a little bit of, I suppose, like stagecraft to call it that, like in terms of, yeah like working room i think it also um it just really bonded us and i think that was something that um felt really important to me and still is still incredibly important to me you know like being a band it's it's a funny one because ultimately we're business partners you know we we're we're like a band is a brand to a certain extent like Mm. we're all we're all kind of um we're all cogs in this machine, yeah. but at the end of the day, we're mates. And if if that part of it doesn't work, then it's just going to be miserable for everybody. And um, I think that's that's kind of the reason that you know we I suppose have been able to carry on doing what we do until today. Whereas you know lots of amazing bands from that time, perhaps um, you know didn't have necessarily that kind of close friendship you know mm. and we, we we toured with bands that who who were absolutely brilliant and who we really were in awe of mm. but uh, you know some of those bands aren't around anymore and i think mm. the key thing with us was that you know we you mentioned henry earlier my dad and like henry's still such a big part of of the mystery jets yeah. machine um and it's really thanks to him that we're, we're still going because he was he was kind of the you know the sage like elder statesman kind of looking over our shoulders yeah. like when we got our first record deal when we got our first publishing deal and hugely um, important hugely yeah and you know we didn't go and 
spend all our money on, you know, like Coke or Snickers, going Snickers out bars. or like, yeah, or like yeah. whatever it is, like those trappings that a young band has to navigate. We were very fortunate that we had Henry as this kind of guiding light for us. Oh, and man. he continues to be that, that, you know, that guiding light till this day. How did that come uh, about anyway? I mean, like how did, um, was there just a guitar in the practice rehearsal room one day and your dad just came in and just, it was there and you just jammed or how did that evolve? When I was about eight years old, he sat myself and William down. So Will, for a long time, was our was our lead guitarist. And me and Will started the band with Henry when we were yeah, yeah about eight or nine years old. And um, I remember after school one day, or possibly on a Saturday, Henry sat us down and he put on uh, The Wall, so the film of The Wall, so with Bob Geldof, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. The uh, um, Alan, I'm trying to remember the director's name. I want to say Alan Parsons, but it wasn't Alan Parsons. Just say either. Alan Rickman. That would be so cool if he directed it. <laughs> Imagine. Imagine. Um, yeah. So he put on the wall, and uh, and it just completely blew our minds. I mean, we we were hiding behind the sofa for half of it, but. The, <laughs> It was this, I suppose what it was, like looking back, was the combination of obviously like the incredible music, but also it was the theatre of it and it was the sense of a story being brought to life and that music could could really be that, that it mm. could tell a story and that it could terrify you. Yeah. Um, the, the, music the wall is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like I suppose as an adult, one listens to a record like that or any music with a sort of political subtext to it in a completely different way but as a child i felt that actually what i experienced in that music was just as valid i I feel like i experienced the the terror that um that is it's sort of all there and you see i think you you kind of hear things or see things in such vivid colors at that age and i really it, it made you know a huge impression on both of us it, and... it was so it was so intense wasn't it i can feel that i can actually do you know what short watership down scared the living shit out of me when i was young <laughs> but but in such a deep profound way because it was yeah. rabbits and stuff you watch the video of the wall or what have you or any of that the, the wall there is profound imagery in there that you, 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 oh man you know it was the children being fed into the sausage i was machine. literally just about yeah exactly man oh my god that, mommy what's going on there yeah there's an airplane up in the sky <laughs> so that was like nigel tussell version yeah <laughs> turn it off turn it off <laughs> quickly jesus christ give him watership down no okay but yeah no sorry I've, I've derailed you slightly there but you know no i like i can so that it obviously that did something to you that was it yeah and i suppose i mean you know I, like i was never a sporty kid growing up uh-huh. henry actually is you know he's a big football fan Good man. Um, who does he support he's a spurs he's a spurs man okay okay yeah i i sense that what are you are you a football man i'm a football man i love football i'm a southampton fan though but um nobody wants to hear that do they no one gives a flying fuck about football at the moment football like just didn't even did they ever exist like you know it's like yeah uh, but but like a lot of things so he's like a big football big football guy he was a big football guy but 
like obviously i mean i've got a disability so sport was never really th- on the cards for yeah me. yeah um, i mean when i was a teenager i actually discovered that i could ride a bmx so I, I i for several years i i used to throw myself off half pipes and things like that <laughs> but um but uh yeah so like sports wasn't something you know that kind of like a typical father-son relationship based around you know going like kicking a ball about on a saturday yeah and instead of that we'd he'd make us watch the wall or, <laughs> or, or you know he'd like i mean i'm trying to think what else he'd play us bit, so bit of jimmy I mean, do you think yeah like well henry was a real prog guy so it'd be, oh, we, it'd be a lot of a lot of genesis a lot of yes king crimson um, do you ever listen to any van, van de Graaff generator i feel like i've got a van de Graaff you got you've got to you've got to check got that out i can't say if i've listened to it that's some wild shit man but yeah king did, crimson oh yeah fantastic did they have a link to gong I, did i have no idea but all i know is i used to be in a band where the drummer produced one of our tracks the drummer from fucking um van de Graaff generator so random so random really? yeah truly but um god yeah man like those um those are weird times and i've, I've derailed you again I've, i'm so selfish you know it's just nice it's, it's really nice to talk to you actually because i um i i haven't really spoken to anyone from the, I, I spoke to james allen from glass vegas um but right. he he um he and i he's it, slightly different like i think in terms of i don't know we, we still connected but it wasn't as like um I don't know like this, doesn't, this feels more like a rootsy connection like maybe we've got a little bit more in common maybe i don't know um but it, it, well we played a gig together well that is that <laughs> is that's it man you know i like cut my teeth with the mystery jets man but it yeah no it's really cool because i what really really interests me is as a band that managed manages to find their own dance dance you know make every dance their own beat like you guys did mm. Um, and then the record label see what's going on and you've created that interest yourself that that is so impressive but like in terms of the wider world so you've got like you know those people that three or four hundred are coming seeing you and stuff but in terms of the wider world when did you first like think shit man we are actually making a bit of impact here like this is this is exciting like did it did it come with signing a record deal did it come with an f like bit of steve lamack or something yeah, I remember our first radio play w- was on. Um, first radio play that I was aware of was on. I think it was Steve Lamax. No, it wasn't Steve Lamax. It was Zane Lowe's <laughs> show. On, it was Zane Lowe's show on Radio One. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is obviously like this is before the days of Six Music. God, yeah. And yeah. Um, I used to fucking love Zane Lowe's show. Yeah. So Zane Zane had like a late night radio one i suppose it's maybe it wasn't that late i, th- I feel like it's the show that annie mac has now so i think it's like nine maybe it, seven ish nine or something yeah around yeah that sounds about right and it would go on till maybe nine or ten yeah and i remember my girlfriend at the time came running into the kitchen she said fucking zoo times on the radio and zoo time was our first it was our first release yeah. and um it's it's i mean we it's been retired from our live set for years okay. and years and years yeah um but it was this sort of bonkers like five minute kind of prog <laughs> industrial odyssey uh, no chorus no verses. Really? it was it was it was like this sort of patchwork 
um beast wow okay and no choruses no verses that sounds no that sounds... It, it was just wow bear yeah bear with us guys <laughs> yeah but it but it got you know it got it, um zane gave it a spin yeah. and it was um shortly after that i guess we got like an enemy radar piece i think mm -hmm. that was that was the sort of well-trodden yeah route was that you you kind of got a radar piece and then um obviously the enemy is pretty much no more isn't it yeah yeah that's sad it's sad it's, it's really desperately sad what's happened to the written written rock and roll press it you know it does depress me a lot yeah but but you know i think at that time it it, it really it was still um you know it still was this huge you know kind of yeah like arbiter of taste oh my god yeah, it was a juggernaut you got on that juggernaut you know you you, you were in pretty good shape right yeah, we we got demo of the week. Though I remember it was called Holly's. It was called Holly's demo hell. We got demo of the week in that, <laughs> and then we we got the Radio One spin, and then we got the radar piece, and then shortly after that, we were asked to be on the Enemy Awards tour. Oh God! So that at that time, that's I, again. I don't know if that's still going, like the awards tour, but it was it was sort of the you know if you could get on that bill, it sort of was like the the golden ticket God, it really uh, was man i remember those days i saw so many and so many did you ever play with some really random bands as well because i remember going to see cold play with like andrew wk and the coral and, right. and then another random band and I, I i just did you ever do that like you just played with some well so so ours was it was us it was so it was four bands it was like it's like a sort of package tour i suppose yeah. so it was us it was we uh we are scientists oh god brilliant band yeah, those guys and Arctic Monkeys, <laughs> but not headlining. Arctic Monkeys were kind of one under one under headline because they hadn't quite broken through yet. Shit. Um, and and then it was Maximo Park. Fuck me! What? By the end of the tour, oh Arctic Monkeys had had their first number one with Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor, and they got they got promoted up to so by the end of the tour they were headlining the tour and it was this really awkward kind of backstage environment oh really because, yeah well i think maximum park were very sort of re respectful about it but yeah. you know the monkeys had sort of become this like overnight sensation oh, God, i mean yeah. i think it was two months it was a couple of months before that tour we played a show in stockton yeah stockton um, it, Stockton in the Midlands yeah. and uh it was our own headline show it was kind of one of our early headline shows and and uh there was this young band who had a bit of a buzz around them that were opening up and I think we'd heard a couple of demos um and they showed up and I think it was in Matt Helder's uh car his mum's car and the band showed up and they borrowed a bunch of our gear yeah. and it was Arctic Monkeys they were the opening band and um and yeah, it was one of those shows. There was like a hundred people in this in the in the room. Yeah. And cut to two months later, two or three months later, it was the enemy tour, and Jesus. you know the number one was, was like shortly after that. Blaine, so that it is was a mental. Really, it was a it was a fun time. But that is mad because like when you started describing that to me, the um, the enemy tour, I was just thinking immediately of those Elvis um uh elvis days with buddy holly and like johnny cash and stuff like roy orbison and they'd all right, be yeah. bobbing around together and everyone would change 
uh, position, like on the bill, depending on how yeah. their single was, the single was doing. It's like, yes. you, but the bands you've listed there, if we had just one of them, I know you guys are still doing your thing and certainly Arctic Monkeys are, but that was just one, that was like one tenth of the, not even, of, of, of the amount of amazing bands that were on offer back then. I really don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an old motherfucker or anything. I, I, I still feel pretty young and I still, and I still listen to a lot of new music, but I just feel like that that's a lot of that. We, we just do not have anymore. I mean, we don't have that, um, well of, of, of wealth of, of, of amazing bands to choose from. There are, I mean, some obviously that can't deny that, but, back then it just seemed to me like there was something going on well i think part of it what part of it was was that indie was um it was so commodified you know mm. and it was like it was like top man based probably their entire men's range for about five or six on the, years on, the killers, from, yeah. on, on that right yeah. it was skinny jeans and it was like waistcoats yeah yeah and pork pie hats all that all that stuff and it did come from the music of that time yeah and i think what's what's different now is that it's much more um uh, i don't know i mean i think there's still there's still some, i mean there's some great young bands out there and you know we're always looking out for for new bands to take um to Ooh, take on the road you should check out the... escapists they are fucking brilliant but they're not young okay. they're like my age but they are brilliant they are really really good escapists yeah, I'll, I'll check out. yeah they've got i've got a new album on spotify but it's fucking great i think what's different is that i think now you just have, you have to dig a little bit harder um to find something you really really like yeah. and, um, but i think i think that's cool because i you know i think um that 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 was a certain time and there was a certain energy and mm. there was there was also a lot of really shit bands. <laughs> You're not wrong there, man. You know we were one uh, of them. Let me tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's 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 difficult to. It's really hard for you. I'm putting you in a really bad position. I didn't even realize that because it is putting you in a bad position because you're 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 still doing an amazing, great, amazing music and you're still going to be you know uh, interacting with a lot of bands and, and artists so yeah you know but i i i i i don't know personally right and i'm changing gear slightly and saying uh, changing track a little bit here but i do not know how you have consistently written such good music and i don't i'm not just blowing smoke up your ass man seriously um although maybe i am um the, the, for example like your new your new single i know the album i don't know if you're going to delay the album or not but um but you know the the new single and as soon as you hear it it's like it's a hit i mean to me it is but you know i'm kind of of that ilk though i love those um that sound that you guys have mm-hmm. and but the, but that's been going on f- for you guys f- since like forever like you know where does that where do you get that from i know it's a daft question to ask but your well seems never ending as a songwriter mm. well i mean that's really kind i mean i think (laughs) well what i'd say is that it it sort of took me um a number of years and it's perhaps even a number of records to sort of find my confidence as a songwriter and um you know thinking back to that time like that we were talking about we didn't really we weren't really like functional in the traditional sense of the band there wasn't 
it was it was never a case of someone bringing in a song and then the band kind of all fleshing it out we sort of wrote we didn't know how to write a song um which is perhaps how things like zoo time that track that i mentioned came about was yeah. that, that was sort of us trying to figure out what a song was and what a song could be and um uh i suppose with time that process changed and it evolved and it was it was around our sort of second and third albums that i took songwriting more seriously and i yeah. you know I, I i suppose i found more appreciation for the craft and I, I started to think more in terms of, um, I suppose, analytically, you know, I'd, I'd listen to records and I'd really try and figure out mm. why certain things worked and even things like certain keys, why certain, you know, a lot, like a lot of the biggest pop songs in the last 30, 40 years are in the key of E flat. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really weird you know, one. On, you're I, sounding I, a little bit like fucking Nigel Tufnell right now. <laughs> well, me and matt waits who who co co-produces like us now so we've co-produced our last two records that like, we kind of have a thing about e flat like sad as four keys I'll... yeah like or i don't d, just write d songs minor. E flat. yeah the songs that i've brought in that he's really liked he'd said hang on a minute give me the guitar and he works out and he's like that's in fucking e flat <laughs> and there's just something about this key um yeah, e, e flat and and uh, and B flat. I think it but, is. But I mean, I think for me, like, is it two? Is it two doors down? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I have to ask that because I have a terrible brain. To, like that, that is an outrageous hook, outrageous pop song. That is when you wrote that. Then I mean, how, how did that come to you? Over like, I was talking to Sam from the Ordinary Boys the other day, and I was saying to him how. Um, I've written a song uh, that opens this podcast and uh, that came to me in five fucking minutes with a band and I knew immediately that's the best song I've ever written. Within, did, did, did that happen with you, like with, with any of your songs? Did it literally just come out and it was like, whoa, what is that? And... Well, I'll tell you the story behind that song. So, so we, were, uh, we were sound checking. In, we were playing a venue called the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto and we were on tour with Claxons at the time. <sighs> Um, great band again the name probably haven't said for a while Jackson's, i but, know what a band though yeah what a band um and so we were on tour with the Claxons in the states and we had one of our own kind of side shows at this venue in um toronto and and we wrote it in soundcheck so the hook myself and our bass player at the time kai we just started kind of jamming this riff in in soundcheck and I started just repeating two doors down. I've got no idea, but those are just the words that yeah. come out. You know, something, I suppose it's something that happens quite often with writing songs is that you, it's the sort of scrambled eggs thing, isn't it? It's yeah. the Paul McCartney thing. You just, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was nonsensical. It didn't, it wasn't attached to any meaning of any kind, but at the end of that tour, I stayed on The rest of the band flew back to London and I stayed on, in new york and i i i decided to make a bit of a writing trip of it um i didn't have a guitar with me but i went to uh there's a music shop very famous music shop somewhere in it was somewhere just off uh fifth avenue i can't remember the name of it but it was this big really big 
it was one of those kind of big like family music shops that sold everything I see, you know right, like yeah yeah uh like a really kind of old style you know like where school pupils would go and you get your recorder there and you oh get, i like, get you i know what i know i know i know what you're not talking like about a rock, not a rock shop yeah <laughs> not um, a rock shop rock shop <laughs> yeah but but i bought a man i sorry i bought a ukulele because oh right okay that's where we're going i thought you were gonna say like a smashing fucking immortal acoustic and or something no no so I, I got a ukulele because it was i, I realized that i could just jump on the um subway and i could just you know like carry it with me and i could easily just shove it in my backpack Sweet. and i'd spend most of the days just kind of wandering um you know like wide-eyed around manhattan just taking it all in um, reincarnation of bob dylan here dude well not reincarnation like, it's, it sounds very <laughs> walking around the village with you know a bit of the long hair and like fucking i'm, I'm feeling that I'm, I'm feeling that i can see that well it was it was actually water boys it was actually the water boys oh. big Waterboys fan and uh, I I'd, I'd read that Mike Scott from the Waterboys lived in on the east side of New York um, and there was this amazing story about the whole of the moon which he the, so the story goes is that he was walking home from a bar where he'd been out drinking and had met um, uh, a pretty young lady and he was walking her back to her apartment um, and and she said, so, you know, what do you do? And he said, well, I, I'm a songwriter. And she said, well, are you any good? And he said, well, I could write a song for you now if you like. And she said, she said yeah, go for it. And he looked up and yeah, yeah. he saw the crescent of the moon. And the first line that sort of just tumbled out was, was, I saw the crescent, you saw the whole of the moon. Oh, man. And um, I think at that point he excused himself and he rushed he home. He pushes her to one side. Yeah, yeah he said... <laughs> and he, he rushed home and he finished the song hey, where are you going and that that story had sort of ingrained itself in my head at that time and so i was kind of walking around new york and i never met the girl but i found the song the song was two doors down um Sweet. and what i'd do is i'd i'd uh, go and sit in this dog park every day um because i the, the, i was staying in a friend's apartment i couldn't really write there so i'd just yeah. go out and sit in the park in the daytime and i found a, a really nice park uh i believe it was macarthur park on the lower east side uh -huh. um and i'd go and sit at the dog park and it was um it was amazing because they had the big dogs on one side and they had the small dogs on the other side <laughs> divided to this little fence but every now and again one of the big dogs would jump the fence into the small dog park yeah. and would chase all the dogs round and around <laughs> the park and I'd just sit there and it would happen again and again, like throughout the day. Yeah. And I, I sort of discovered my perfect writing spot. So I'd just sit on this bench and um, I'd go back each day with, with my ukulele. And it was probably day four or day five yeah. that uh, Two Doors Down came out. So that was, that was the story of that song. God, I yeah. absolutely love it. It's such a, it really get, get, puts a picture in your mind. It's so wonderful that, you know, and, and like fast forward because um, another, I think it's like Rad Radlands and Serotonin for me. Like the, I think um, it's like Serotonin would be your third album, right? Yes. And yeah. I mean that that is Serotonin's been on every single mixtape I've I've ever made for a girl, in, including <laughs> including my wife. Like that is just it's just a get it on there, sit back and enjoy this. This is just, <laughs> it's just <laughs> fucking amazing, man. Because it's like one of those. Um, 
Is what I wanted to, because I was thinking about this when I was working earlier. Your your vote, your vo- your voice, your vocal line, how you managed to. Because I think a lot of people may may not realise it perhaps in terms of singing and and learning how to sing in the key that's favourable to you. I know we mentioned E flat and all that, but when you learn how to sing in a key and make it sing, like soar rather, make that your voice really become what it's there to do in the band as an instrument, you know and. Fucking up serotonin. That is just what a chorus. I'm because when you hear that, I mean, for for a long time, you know, I, I, like I said, I wasn't a singer, I wasn't a trained singer to begin with. I I was the drummer, and for a long time, I, you know, I I definitely had a real imposter syndrome Mm. when it came to being a singer and definitely to being a front man. I mean, I I think I still have an imposter syndrome when it comes to being a front man, but as a singer. It was actually it was discovering the music of Daniel Johnston. Um, oh, wow, yeah. And it was hearing those, you know, those incredible crackly Daniel Johnston recordings mm. where he had this really high squeaky voice, you know, yeah. singing into his tape recorder with his little Bon Tempe organ in his mum's basement. And those those tapes just had such a magic about them about them. And but also it was it was hearing um you know he had a high voice like mine i mean i've I've got a um i'm 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 tenor i suppose Uh and um and it was hearing it was hearing him sort of just really belting it out and um you know not not following any 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 sort of like traditional musical sense of what um what a a vocal melody is or should be he just there's but there's such an inherent musicality to his voice and i found that with neil young as well you know wow. listening to neil young um he's really discovered... he's really up there isn't he like higher in, in terms of like uh scale or whatever exactly exactly and it's he's almost got quite a thin voice you know it's 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 quite a yeah. um in terms of the timbre of it it's quite a thin sounding voice and um and i think it was it was yeah it was hearing neil and, and daniel johnson that i suppose like allowed me to embrace not having you know like a, a, a rock voice or yeah. or a um you know like a, a more uh indie i was gonna say indie voice but i don't know what an indie voice who, is who, who knows what it, i know but i know no, i know what you mean but i think there's a power in your voice though i think there's a very and particularly in radlands where you've got like um these are our greatest hits Sha-la-la-la, all those amazing back like for me that is just like I, I heard that song and I, I felt your I felt exactly where you were coming from in terms of your writing and like um, very very much the Kinks if I'm not mm-hmm. right. and, yeah and I, and I, I guess it is yeah and I, I heard that and I felt I think that's what um, I feel with the, the bands that I love and adore the most I feel that umbilical link between what they're trying to say and they're saying it and they're connecting with me and that's such an important thing that we overlook constantly in music it's just a basic connection you know it, it doesn't matter whether it's a number one or whatever or the fucking how the album's doing in the charts or who, who's listening to it it's, it's about that connection i can feel what you're doing in that song and it's it just sings to me man it speaks really really speaks to me and that and that that i say that even goes for you you know your new song um the new single you've got out now um is it a billion a billion heartbeats right a billion heartbeats yeah yeah and i mean is that how do you, how are you feeling about because like we've got, we've just missed curve of is it curve of the earth? 
Kind of the Earth was our was our last album. I've yeah, literally just completely jumped over it uh, by by mistake. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a few of them out there now, so yeah. it's it's uh, let's talk about them all. But um, yeah, I mean, I suppose like one of the one of the things you mentioned earlier was what, how do you um, how do how do you keep going? Like, what what are the forces that enable you to sort of stick around? Yeah, and I think through all of those records, I think we've you know like in a way that force has come from looking around us and finding new stories to tell and new things to to get excited about mm. what you know be it from literature be it from movies be it from discovering other artists what's going on in our personal lives or in the case of you know the the new record it was it was protests it was activism yeah. and it was it was taken to the streets and um you know c- kind of coming out of this insane five or six years that, that we've been living in and that's is, that's actually where the seed for the music came from so what brexit um, is that well partly brexit i mean i think just the i suppose just the um experience of living in this country mm. in that you know yeah i suppose in what you could call that kind of post-referendum environment because it wasn't just brexit was it it was it was britain first it was uh it was all free tommy robinson stuff it was extinction rebellion um it was a lot of forces colliding that felt that um you know i I certainly felt that that's that's something that i didn't hear music talking about what was going on outside my join my club like i'm constantly saying that like Laura and I are constantly saying, where are the fucking bands? Like, since 2016, there's been this enormous opportunity. And there, okay, there are bands obviously trying their best and, and writing protest songs and what have you. Like, Idols are pretty damn good at that. Um, what have you, just to name one. I love Idols. They're, they're, they're brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what is it? So are we going to hear stuff on this, on this album then that's um, a, a bit more... Uh, observational in terms of like society as a whole yeah absolutely i mean i'd say that um it's very much that you know the record um was inspired by living so it's got it's got i suppose a slightly interesting story which is that at the time that i wrote the album i i just recently become a property guardian um i was close to leaving london like a lot of my friends moved out and um starting to settle down have kids and i suppose the prospect of being an artist sustaining um like like you know like an income living in the city was just becoming more and more of a difficult thing to imagine and um a really dear friend of mine said to me well try changing your postcode and see see what happens like try try to find a different way to experience london yeah um and i kind of thought well i don't really know what that means <laughs> but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a shot and so i found this um via a friend i found this opportunity to become a property guardian and the first space that they offered me was this ginormous i mean the size of like what you picture kind of an old new york loft to be like a, like a, you know like in a kind of Sweet. um warholian loft it was this entire floor of an <laughs> office building on the strand yeah. looking diagonally over to trafalgar square um Good God. and so i i ended up in this insane situation where um this was so this was the end of 2016 uh-huh. 
and um at that time it really did feel like every it was every weekend or sometimes it was it was bi-weekly there was something going on whether it was a people's vote march whether it was you know refugees welcome it was black oh, i see Matter. i see yeah it was, it was free tommy robinson and all this stuff extinction rebellion it was all it was all happening right outside my front window so i just literally looked down onto the strand and all the protests would come past um <laughs> The first one that I went on was the uh, NHS march uh-huh. in 2017, okay. and and um, I I wouldn't say that I'd pr- prior to that been that much of a political person. I mean, mm-hmm. I I attended the uh, Stop the War march, the anti-Iraq War march yeah, when I was a me too, when yeah. I was an anti-Iraq student. Oh, you were there as well. Oh, yeah, Amazing. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I went on that march and um, I think po- possibly like a lot of people, of, you know, from our generation, I felt that um, the fact that we still went into that war and the fact that all those voices, you know, close to a million people weren't listened to. Yeah. Um, I felt I felt like I didn't have a voice in politics I, and I didn't feel that um, I didn't feel represented by people in um you know, in government and positions of power. And I think also part of it was was to do with being a musician, being an art student, sort of being more drawn to a kind of anti-establishment way of thinking. Okay, yeah. uh, But it, it was being thrown into this situation in the middle of that kind of post-Brexit, um, you know, saga, where, where I had Trafalgar Square on my doorstep, that... You know, I found myself taking an interest in politics again and um, wanting to try and find a version of politics that felt palpable and relevant to my life, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean honestly, and, and I think who you are and this incredibly you know, astute human being, I'm saying that having only had, had like an hour and 10 minutes with you, but you know, we're just going to say that um, it's kind of hard for you not to look out your window and, and be affected by those things. And, and there are songwriters that would probably turn their backs and go, Oh, bloody hippies or whatever. I don't know. Um, and yeah, I, I'm exactly, I mean, I'm exactly the same. It's just, it's how you articulate. That's how you put it on the paper that engages people. Um, mm. And I suppose turn it into little stories and what have you. Um, uh, that's exactly it and i because i think there's obviously there's there's an incredible danger with singing political songs um you know of alienating people and of dividing opinion and um of coming across preachy or ill-informed and i think um the way you get around that is you 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 sing things from your perspective because ultimately that's what you are as a songwriter you're not you're not um you know you're not a a journalist and you're not a politician you're not a world leader you're someone with a set of eyes and a set of ears and um i can't remember who i think it might have been billy bragg that said you know music is is an amazing thing it's an empathy machine yeah it you know it, it allows us to um to step into other people's shoes and to see the world through their eyes and to try and tell their stories. Yeah. That's Billy and, Bragg, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. Billy Bragg through and through. And I, and I, I, um, and I really felt that going on protests. I felt that I wasn't there to shout. I wasn't there 
to sing. I mean, I recorded a lot of the songs and kind of played around with them. And yeah. there's elements of them that, that um, inspired a lot of the lyrics on the record, actually. But it was really, it was going there to listen and, um, you know, meeting people from completely different backgrounds who traveled from all different corners of the country to to have their voices be heard, you know. And mm. I, I found that really um, empowering at a time when, you know, these political divides and the polarity in society just felt so ugly um, and, and, and divisive, mm. you know, in, in, in terms of splitting up families, splitting up friends groups. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, how many, how many Sunday family dinners were ruined yeah. by, by that, you know? Oh, God. And, and, um, and, you know, I think what I, although I'm definitely, um, you know, very much, uh, uh, you know, a, a labor man. I'm a liberal person. I'm a liberal minded person. I felt that my, my job wasn't, wasn't to put forward, um, either case of that argument. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in regard to the Brexit thing, there isn't a song about Brexit on the album and that was very deliberate. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up in France. Yeah. Um, I, my mum's Australian, my dad's Irish. I don't really feel British. So I, I didn't really feel part of that conversation, yeah. but I felt, um, people found, and, and, you know, and do find it incredibly, uh, hard to really hear other people's perspective and other people's point of view. Yeah. And I think in the echo chambers of social media, we're getting, more and more we're getting better and better at, at listening to our own voices and not at listening to other people isn't that true is it's so true isn't that it's so true and i i think there's the validity you want to be validated like there's what there's this absolute need to be relevant like that crib song you know don't you want to be relevant and it's so it's so you know that it's more than ever this you don't have to we don't and not everyone has to hear you what you say and and just be content with just just be be content with not necessarily your own silence. Be content with your own opinions. But the whole world doesn't have to fucking know that you 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 hate like someone who comes from Latvia or what have you. Um, mm. And it, it's it just it makes it's gonna you're you're not gonna hate ain't gonna win the day, man. And it's such a sad thing that that people do do not realise that. And I suppose what we're we're heading to now following coronavirus is like hopefully god willing a little bit of a sea change a kinder a kinder a kinder thing i don't, I don't know whether that means that we're going to have to have another general election i don't know why i said that fucking general election we're going to have to have some kind of movement after after covid because please please can we not yeah can we yeah, just, yeah just take this as a <laughs> as an opportunity to learn a lesson yeah and um and try and have history not repeat itself yeah. i think that's you really need to do yeah uh, but yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I, I just i couldn't I, I couldn't stomach another goddamn general election but I, I i definitely could stomach a kinder britain like that that would be that would be pleasant um but i don't know if we're capable of that but before before we go um if you, do you this is a random one it probably won't go on the podcast but do you do you know a, a fellow called will drysdale Yes, I do know Will, Dry Will Drysdale. Yeah. yeah, we played in a wedding band together. Oh, well, there you go, mate. Yeah, and he said, um, in fact, he just messaged me about Arsenal because he's an Arsenal fan. And his, his, na his name just came up and I was like, um, 
and we were doing a quiz last night with a group of mates. I said, I'm, I'm chatting with, with Blaine tomorrow. And he said, oh, I'll say hello. Um, so he says he says hello and sends his love. Oh, yeah, I love Will. Is, is he a... He's he's a producer at Six Music, or is he's, he? He he was working at Six. I think he he's now at Radio Four. Um, Radio Four, working okay. on the me, like media platforms and stuff like websites and stuff like that. Okay. So he's yeah, yeah, he's worked yeah. on the new Louis Theroux podcast. Um, oh, I love that! I love the John Ronson episode. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got to listen to it. I'm a I'm a gardener. I've got all the time in the fucking world to listen to stuff like that. But um, he um. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he he's an amazing songwriter. I like he's he was he was in a really good band called the Lebrox, and obviously he's a he's a dad now with um oodles of responsibility. So no time for that shit. Um, are you from a, a similar part of the world to Will? Then are you yeah. kind of Guilf- like Guildford way? Yeah, I'm from I'm a little village called Chiddingfold. Um, okay, and then we right, used to get you know shit face playing bands in Godalming and Guildford. Yeah, and um, so where did you meet him then? So I met Will Drysdale through um, a mutual friend, Adam Morley. Oh, Adam. Yeah, I know Adam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So so Adam Adam and I went to uni together. We went to Kingston Art School together. Yeah. And um, there's a whole load of us. There's a whole gang of us that all kind of <laughs> met on foundation. Yeah. Um, and so I met, I met Will through Adam and then we played together in Adam's wedding band. Oh, I see. Okay. The after rates. The after, of course, of <laughs> course. And why not? Oh, mate, that's so sweet. That's so cool. There's always yeah. like some sort of little degree of separation. I like that. That's cool. Um, well, look, man. Look, thanks so much for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's good. Yeah, it's been it's been nice having conversation and covered a lot. There's um, yeah, there's a lot more I, I could talk about. It's just one of those things when you get on the train, man. You you start at like. It, it, you could do an eight-hour train journey if you just got that one little fucking you touch paper or whatever you call it. You, you start the spark and the whole fucking thing goes up. You know, it's like it's, it's, it's what I love about this podcast talking about music. It's it's not always been music; it's been politics mainly. But well, that's that's what I was going to say because yeah. I remember when you reached out and you and you told me about the podcast. Um, I listened. I listened to a couple of episodes. I oh, listened nice. to the um, Peter Peter Tatchell yeah. episode, which. I love. Oh, brilliant! And uh, and um, oh, and the journalist. Uh, oh, John Harris. John Harris. Yeah, yeah, mate. I, I fucking, fucking hell! I want to get another one with him. His, in fact, what I'd love to do is just put, like, just get a Zoom call with like two other musicians and him and, and me, and just go right. Right, because he was happens. he was like a he was like a music hack back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had amazing connection. Still yeah, he's, he's still out there. Yeah. You know, it's it's completely crazy. But that um Peter Tatchell one was was a as a mad interview. Like a, his flat was absolutely minute, absolutely chock chocker block with memorabilia. You know, bed bed mattress on the floor and this tiny 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 little flat. Um, just the most mad mad place I, I don't know what i expected he was gonna be like but yeah. he has done that's actually exactly how i picture oh him really living. Say that, yeah oh that's so funny because he he has he is a fucking human being he has done the most brave bravest shit i've ever known like it for, for people to do like just, just go to russia and face down like essentially nazis it's, it's extraordinary you know and we got and, and um and he called out there, there was the whole um the Nick, calling Nick out Griffin. all the, the 
Well, I was going to say, calling out all the um, the members of the church that were gay. There was like this whole campaign about um, calling out people who were. Um, it was a, it was essentially a, a campaign to out people in the church. Yeah, not just in the church. It was I think it was in Westminster as well. But it were people who were discriminating against LGBT rights. Yeah. Outed, um, he's amazing uh, yeah so he's re- really really inspiring but it's interesting because i thought i thought um we'd be having an even more political conversation oh, okay. but, it, but it's it's nice that we took so many twists and turns which is great well, i did i did want to talk about um the work you do for um char- charity um the disability because um my friend had uh, spinal muscular atrophy and he um we were in a band together for years like a shitty fucking band um right. terrible oh my god awful but we had the best yeah. fun because what you touched on earlier about you know not giving a shit because you're so young you don't care but yeah i used to yeah. i used to have to carry him upstairs to, to to he was a guitar player i was a drummer and i'd carry him upstairs and so you could do this fucking sound check carry him back downstairs and then carry him back up for the gig you know all venues mm-hmm. across the uk for that um and i thought maybe mm-hmm. you you because I, I know you have um oh forgot what it is now spina bifida spina bifida yeah, yeah. which is vaguely yeah. it's similar isn't it to spinal muscular atrophy it's like a is, is it it's like muscular right it's yeah it's not de- degenerative no. but it's it's um it's you know what i'm probably the <laughs> you don't know worst you don't know nothing about spina bifida. i don't know it's <laughs> <laughs> the word i mean they, they tell me i've got word. it i just feel shit sometimes right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Exactly. and but um it has led me to some interesting places, you know, and, and, and one of those is, like you mentioned, it's working with venues and improving access to live music for uh, for deaf and disabled people. Yeah. And that's um, it's been it's been something I've been involved in for 10 years now. Uh-huh. 10 years. Uh, that's good going. Yeah. So I, I met I met Suzanne Bull, who's who started Attitudes Everything. Is she is she's small la- a blonde lady in a wheelchair? Yes. I fucking know her. I'm telling you, I've probably seen her. I've, yeah, I know. No, I've actually genuinely loved that woman. I, I haven't seen her in fucking 15 years, but I used to absolutely love her. Me and Greg, yeah. this guy I was talking about. Oh, my God. Fucking hell. What a sweetheart. Yeah, she, she she's amazing. And she's you know, she's she received a um, uh, OBE last year so she's you know and i mean um she's just one of the most inspiring people i know and she came up to me at a radio so we were both on a disabled platform watching radiohead Uh um, when they played the hell to the thief tour at um Elle's court she came up to me and she gave me a flyer for um an event that attitude is everything we're putting on and she said you know you might be interested in coming down to this and I did. And as soon as I got there, I said, I- I'm in a band, you know, can we play like this? This is incredible. Can we be a part of this? And she said, yeah, like, let's let's book you guys to do the next show. And this is around that similar time yeah. that, um, that, um, that we would have played together, you know, kind of mid 2000s. Oh, right. And um, and um, we we played the show for Attitude is Everything. And it was unreal. It was like no other gig. Um, I'd been to yeah. or that the band played at. What venue? There was, so it, it was a venue called the Spitz 
okay. which used to be in the in Spitalfield Market. Spitalfield Market had a bar upstairs, not, and there was a venue. Not there. Ding Dingwalls. Dingwalls. No, Dingwalls is Camden. This was in. I'm oh, sorry, I'm going mad because we played a gig for Attitude Is Everything at Dingwalls, and, and we played it with Hefner. If you can remember those guys. Oh, it's one of those names. Yeah. I feel like it's but, singing some distant bells. Sorry, carry on. Sorry, you were saying. That's amazing, though. You played. You played a show for them. Wow. You know that was that was that was it. That was the thing about Attitude Is Everything is that this gig that we played at. You know, there was there was uh, there was accessible toilets. The bar was accessible. There was ramps. There was um, there was a lift for electric wheelchairs. There was a hearing loop for people um, hard of hearing. Uh, there was a live. Uh, signer so there was live sign language the dance hall was full and and these kids in wheelchairs were smashing into each other moshing and i just thought this is this is what you know this that this shouldn't have to happen in special club nights for people with special needs this is what shows should be like these people should be welcome at festivals at gigs and you know i can tell you when i was when i when i was 15 when i first started going to festivals there were disabled platforms, but they were few and far between. And they were often so empty that I'd invite all my family and all my mates to get up there with me. And I'd say, you know, there's loads of room up, up here. You know, now you can't get on the things. If you go if you go to Reading, you, you know, Reading or Leeds or Glastonbury, sometimes you have to wait for up to half an hour, an hour to get on them um, to watch headlines. And, and that's a really good thing. That's really, really inspiring because it means that people with access needs are being welcomed to to festivals and live music events and that's so important because music is the most powerful fucking medicine we've invented as a species it really is you know it's like it's it's so powerful and i think it's it's something that everyone needs to have access to um well it, you know it is it is snowballing and i and i do feel that um you know it's it's be, it's been a it's been a slow up, uphill struggle, but the but the industry is starting to take us seriously. And you know, when I say us, I I you know I suppose to a point I mean the disabled community. And I think um, you know there is also huge financial incentive uh, incentive for the music industry to take us seriously. You know, they call it the purple pound. Um, you know, there there is there is a whole there is a whole. Um, you know, there's a country of music lovers. You know, one in ten people in the UK identify as having a disability, and those people want to come. They want to have a good time. They want to, you know, they want to go to to shows and and gigs and festivals just the same as everyone else. And you know, the industry is starting to wake up and um, and change. So I, I actually feel really positive about it. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder what she thinks 